Welcome to La Cura Podcast. I'm your host, Francisca Porches Coronado. La Cura will take you on a journey at the intersection of health, healing, and social justice. We will engage in conversations about decolonizing our health and reclaiming traditional ways of well-being and healing. We will explore and honor our multiple identities, cultures, traditions, and remedios. This offering is brought to you by Mi Gente, a political home of Latinx and Chicanx people that is pro-Black, pro-woman, pro-poor, pro-queer, because our communities are all that and more. We are so excited to kick off this third season of La Cura podcast with my friend and peer Mark Anthony Johnson. There are so many conversations that I want to geek out on this season with amazing folks, but I thought it was very important to begin the season grounding us in a conversation about decolonizing health, since that is one of the main intentions of this podcast. And so the way in which health has been defined by the very systems that were built to annihilate us exploit us and make us sick and the ways in which these systems continue to determine not only our well-being but also our self-determination our agency our longevity or lack thereof but throughout history our communities have challenged this and have reclaimed ourselves themselves their well-being our well-being again and again And so I want to introduce you to my friend, Mark Anthony Johnson, who is a Black organizer, an acupuncturist, a scholar. I don't know if he would call himself that, but I, I call him that, um, or nerd, a profoundly spiritual leader. He's also the founder and director of the Frontline Wellness Network. This network is a network of health practitioners committing to ending mass incarceration throughout the state of California. We are so excited to have you, Mark Anthony. Welcome to La Cura Podcast. One more thing about Mark Anthony is he also has been my friend and comrade for the past 17 years. And I thought that's important to name as well. So welcome to La Cura Podcast, Mark Anthony. Hey, <laughs> that was amazing. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm excited. I'm excited we get to be in conversation. This is great. So, Mark Anthony, I know that you've been, uh, like all of us, in a long nine-month quarantine. Uh, and so I know that when the shutdown happened, at least in California, because in Arizona, people are acting like it's business as usual. But when it happened, you um, had a brand new baby um, <laughs> and we're really new to parenthood as well. So I just wanted to to ask you how that's been. How how is it going with your beautiful child and oh these last God, yeah. nine months? Uh, which you know it's interesting. Nine months is the 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 <laughs> the amount of pregnancy lasts, and we're nine months out. Tell us tell us how it's been. Yeah, yeah, no, Askia has been wonderful and amazing. <laughs> um, she turned. Uh, 11 months yesterday. Um, it's just been a joy, you know, like she's in, mm. she's in that place right now where she like mimics the sounds you make 
And so we just have these like <laughs> wonderful conversations where we just make up sounds and she mimics them or she says something and I mimic her. And it's just, it's pretty incredible. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. been good. It's been good. And, you know, this pandemic has obviously been challenging in so many ways. Um, and one opportunity is I've been able to be around her so much more uh, at home. So that's been that's been a blessing for sure. So does that mean you're really watching, you know, what you say and how you you describe things? <laughs> Mark Anthony has one of the most colorful, you know, dictionaries <laughs> to describe uh, how he feels about things. Oh my god! Um, some people might call it cursing a lot. Um, you know, depends on who you are, but. That's amazing. Yes, I definitely am <laughs> careful. It'll happen. Trust me. We we both have a potty mouth, so I've I've definitely said things that my um my five year old, who's now seven, uh, at a birthday party with my in laws in San Diego, said the f word really loud. Oh my gosh! Um, it was extremely <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> I'm going to shift our our conversation a bit here. I am really excited to talk to you about some of the work that you've been doing the last few years. Um, You've always been a healer in my eyes. You still are. Mm. I think the side of you that a lot of people see mostly is is the organizer, freedom fighter, you know, Black revolutionary in a lot of ways. And, And obviously, we have a lot of Black revolutionaries who are also healers in a lot of ways. Um... And so I wanted to talk to you about this thing you've been exploring now, pouring your energy into the question of politicized healing and specifically around the intersection between health and what you call the political economy, right? Um, And I say it like that because I feel like it's definitely a term that you've been sort of sitting with and, um, you know, deepening at least for me, I've learned a lot. And um, and yeah, I just, I wanted to ground us in some basics, right? As we go into this conversation, um, I wanted to ask you under our current economic system or this political economy, what do you think is the purpose of being well? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I'm glad we get to be in these conversations. And, um, you know, it, it's it's funny because part of you were you were there when I basically had my revelations around wanting to become an acupuncturist and much of that started from the trips you and I took to New Orleans um, after Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina right and seeing mm-hmm. the real devastation of all the systems that are supposed to be containing and sustaining life whether that's transportation or healthcare and all of those things um, and yet acupuncture really deployed itself into uh, some of our trips, and and I was able to experience it there, and and brought it back, and just really shaped the kind of way I think about, and certainly through so many conversations you and I and so many other of our comrades have had, have thought about you know this question of like what is the purpose of being well, and you know I oftentimes think about this autobiography that I read, the autobiography of James L. Smith. 
And, you know, he tells his stories. A black man was born into enslavement in Virginia and tells a story of being a young boy on a plantation and was told by the plantation owner to, you know, carry some large pieces of lumber, if I remember, from one place on the plantation to another. And long story short, him and another person are are doing so. And I believe he's young, much like maybe like eight years old. And the lumber drops and injures his leg. And I believe he breaks his knee. And what's striking to me as he's telling the story uh, is that he doesn't seek care. He doesn't tell anybody, Hmm. which to me says a lot about like just the amount of pressure, maybe even fear we can imagine, the type of sanctions that would happen to try and get care and pursue care for such an excruciating injury. But long story short, it was a couple days before his grandmother found him uh, and noticed Hmm. that he was suffering, went to the plantation owner and said, look, my grandson is has a broken leg can you please call a doctor to which the plantation owner responded i have enough negroes on this plantation to work and so whether your grandson lives or dies is not my concern and to me it's this really critical moment he certainly survived and he was able to get care but it's this really critical moment where you're looking at the plantation economy And the function of well-being for black people within that economy was one of to be exploited, right? To be well enough to work and be exploited. And to the extent that there were enough workers, your, your life became less valuable. And the political economy that that then supports this system of slavery, which wasn't just an economic system, obviously, it was a, it was an entire ideology. It was an entire power base. As we know, through the Civil War, it was literally trying to protect that. And so those definitions of health and well-being were very live in that moment. And and you had doctors who wrote entire diagnoses around what they called the fitness of Black people. And fitness literally meant healthy enough to work. And so, you know, I try to raise those same questions about this moment we're in, right, where you have... Uh, COVID-19 is is literally making so explicit some of these relationships between health and economy. We're literally talking about, are we well enough to open the economy or slow it down and those type of things? And it's it's a question I want to be in because, as we can see, um, in some of its most extreme cases, right-wing agenda to keep economies open or ignore of the pandemic or try and quote unquote manage it such that we can reopen uh, for the sake of private business and for the sake of quote unquote the economy at the same time we see essential workers many of who are black and brown putting their lives on the line every day getting sick every day and so I, there's something very core about health and the management of health for the sake of keeping an economy going that is harming us, that feels really central. And obviously that's not our definition of what health and wellness should be. Right. But it feels like there's something there that we should be interrogating, and that many of us are.
Yeah, there's so much in what you just said. I think two thoughts that come to mind is is pieces that, of history that I've read about how the entire life insurance system was built out of, was birthed out of slavery, essentially, the system of slavery and how the first people that had quote-unquote life insurance, which I'm not sure that that's what it necessarily was called back then, but were those that were enslaved African peoples who uh, were insured sort of goods. And then when um, slavery was abolished, then we had a whole industry that wanted to survive and so made a whole business out of insuring people's lives. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't even think about the roots of, of this system um, not today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a- along with <laughs> the entire way in which um, industrialization happened in this in this country and the manuals that managers, line managers, my father was a factory worker for 20 plus years. And just to think that he was an immigrant working on the line in a factory and the very manuals that were, that guide um, how people work in factories. There's not so many factories in this country anymore, um, but um, we're birthed out of, you know, again, production. And and, um, and I think that we could say that the modern way in which, you know, our economy operates, it's all about what you said, productivity, like mm-hmm. being well for the purpose of producing, being well for the purpose of building the wealth by being exploited or being well enough to be exploited to build more wealth. And so then to some degree, it sounds like we don't even get to define what well-being is to us. And we even say we have to be well enough to work or we don't eat or we don't survive mm-hmm. or we don't, whatever that is. And so we, this is interesting how it even shows up for us about how we relate to being well and for the purpose of what as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And adopting the the definition for our own survival. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I I also like think like the the current detention system or just kind of reminds me I've been hearing for a lot of folks inside detention saying that they um, every time that they say that they are not doing mentally well, maybe depressed, uh, then a lot of suicide ideation, they get thrown in the hole for even saying it out loud or or asking for help, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, it has a lot to do with driving costs down of any medical care inside detention or. Also, like the bad, the bad publicity, right? Um, so I know that you've also defined the political economy. So I'm just curious about what is it that makes it right. Like I, th- I think you've heard, I've heard you speak about power and ideology and agenda. And so um, I'm just curious if you could tell us a, a bit more about those components that sort of make up the political economy and then health under that. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, by no means do I think these ideas are, are original to me. It comes from just obviously the conversations that we get to have and, and I get to be in with so many brilliant organizers. Um, but, you know, thinking about economy as the ways in which our society is organized and the way it arranges our ability to get our basic needs met. And then when I think about politics and when I talk about politics in relationship to health and 
I think about politics as any moment or any action where power and ideology converge to move an agenda, as you said. And so what are the ways in which ideology, racist ideology or sexist and patriarchal ideology, capitalist ideology that you've named are using its various forms of power to shape the way we get our needs met or don't get met is really some of that that question that I think political economy raises for us. And, you know, and, and I think we start to see it. I mean, you're, you're talking about it. You're naming it in so much ways, so many ways. If, if the way in which these systems are defining health that we see is that well-being and health serve our ability to be exploited or ability to be laborers or ability to function in those ways. And if we're trying to define health in a way that is liberating, then health has to be related to political power. Mm. It has to be related to our ability to build political power that abolishes or transforms those systems, right? And so obviously me, you, and, and Prentice have been in this project with Resilient Strategies where we've been articulating this idea around the relationship between healing and building power and really trying to say that these things are very much connected. And what I'm really interested in is that question of, you know, how does healing translate into our ability to change our economy and why it's a necessary function? So, I mean, that's what I think about when 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 you ask that question is like, how do we define it? It has to be has to be rooted in our ability to access political power, this question of healing, and therefore to change our ability to get our basic needs met. Mm-hmm. And that's been some of the work that you've been doing also through your project, the Frontline Wellness Network, because I feel like the way that what you're saying is really important around tying health to building power and changing this economy. And I think a, um, a place that people think, oh, health, uh, the medical system, they they think hospitals, they think, they don't even think mental health, really. I feel like there's been a fight for people to right, acknowledge right. their health as mental health too. But, but I think people sort of think that all of that, like health overall lives in like the hospital or the clinic or the doctor's office. And, and I think obviously it's definitely a very important part of the fight and a really important system. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but there's so much more, right? Uh, the economy itself and and uh, and the agenda that's being pushed. But I, but you do see the medical system, I think, as a really important place to build power. And so I I'd love to hear a little bit more about the work that you are doing in tying these things together and then organizing people inside. Yeah, no, totally. And you know, I'm, I'm excited that Frontline Wellness Network has has been successful in posing this question of how do we as healthcare providers understand our practice of health and healthcare. And really, if we're politicizing our understanding of health and the ways you and I are talking are talking about it, then I think the question we have to ask ourselves as healthcare providers is, does our practice of providing healthcare adequately respond to the political agendas that people are facing in their lives, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, what that looks like in Los Angeles, where we've had to wage almost a decade-long campaign against a $4 billion jail, uh, a mental health jail, which is obviously an oxymoron. No one's mental health is improved uh, by jail. In fact, it's it's the opposite. 
um, is that providers are really agitated by that question and moved by just the very reality that they can't do even some of the most basic things and their basic functions and pursue and really provide someone's basic well-being that they want to in these systems. Um, and then obviously there are some folks who are functioning within jail mental health or prison mental health who uh, are trying to do humanizing work. And there are some folks who are, are fine with just being that stabilizing force that are using healthcare just to literally protect the jail and prison system from litigation. Uh, and then there are those folks who, as we know, really harm our folks in those facilities. And that very much is part of the general practice, right, of, of these systems is to really leverage harm against our folks. And so we see the healthcare system as a, as a political arena and the health sector as a political arena um, and are really trying to move at least Los Angeles. And I think we've had some success in, in not only stopping a $4 billion jail, a mental health jail and a women's jail as part of a much broader coalition that's bigger than us and that's literally being led by folks who've been incarcerated, black and brown folks, their families, but also like building out a whole plan to develop alternatives to incarceration in Los Angeles that now through the passage of really dope, innovative work like the passage of Measure J can be funded. I mean, Measure J will secure a billion dollars a year to invest in alternatives to incarceration. And so there's momentum. It's, it's phenomenal and it's exciting and it's humbling to be a part of this moment in history in LA and this organizing moment. And the anxiety that I have around this kind of shift from yeah. like this punishment frame to a public health frame for dealing with trying to stop the criminalization of mental health and houselessness and substance use and all these things is how do we prevent doctors, nurses, and other folks from performing the functions of a police officer. Right. And that new infrastructure that we're building, uh, those new clinics, those new decentralized health systems, like how do we prevent those things from not functioning like jails? And that's, I think we see a lot of providers right now who are doing some really exciting work. We're in a campaign right now to remove sheriffs from our local hospitals and to change hospital policy so that they have less and less power. Um, but that's the real kind of grapple and tension that we're out and really battling for what we mean when we say health. It means that we are going to protect our ability to provide for our patients and protect their self-determination, right? And, and I think we're, it's a very, very live battle that's exciting and it's, it's really speaks to a shifting kind of moment we're in in Los Angeles. really at the cutting edge of where the country or where the movement you know has has moved i mean i think the movement has been there we many of us have wanted to defund the police many of us are abolitionists and i think this summer because of of this black led uprising there was a breakthrough in consciousness mm-hmm. around abolishing police and defunding police. I think a breakthrough in like mass consciousness. I'm not saying everybody agrees. I'm not saying everybody's there. I'm not saying that this new administration is there, but the fact that there was that sort of breakthrough 
is incredible and that you all have been doing this for years now. Mm-hmm. It must have been really exciting to see the rest of the country sort of like rise up in that way. And that this dilemma that you're having is it, the anxiety is real. What you're saying, anxiety, absolutely. And it's also like, what an amazing, like, what an exciting dilemma to have at the same time. <laughs> Where it's like, damn, we won. And then now we have to, like, literally, we get to think about how we want to reshape, how we want to, like, build a new system. Advocate, obviously, continuously forever and ever, right? It is because the, the system always, always recalibrates. But you get to figure out how to build potentially a brand new system. And that is so incredibly exciting. And I know that's something that, you know, you yourself for years and the rest of the team in LA and and movement in LA has been building for a long time. And also that going back to you, that you've been, you know, studying and dreaming about and, and, and working towards for a long time. Um, I think one of the examples you talk a lot about is the Black Panther Party that I love for you to share and what you learned, uh, as well as the the Medical Committee for Human Rights. And these are stories that, not story stories, but like literal inf- like history that Mark Anthony has shared with me in the past around these revolutionary dreams that are now sort of like at the edge of becoming, could become a reality, at least in the county of L.A. Yeah, no, thank you, Fran. And you're right. It's 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 a it's an it's a good angst. It's it's an a creative angst that we're in, and and it's exciting. It's an exciting moment. Um, and yeah, you know, when we started Frontline Wellness Network, I was really in that question around like, what is the historical precedent for healthcare providers throwing down in these movements? Because um, obviously, it's happened. And when you look at the history, there really hasn't been a moment. Uh, an abolitionist moment where there was abolition of slavery or the abolition of lynching or Jim Crow where healthcare providers have not either been called in or haven't actively thrown down. And you see that through folks like the Medical Committee for Civil and Human Rights who was called in by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to throw down on the front lines uh, and to, to desegregate the South and to do really critical work around the black vote helped to develop diagnoses that they coined around what they called battle fatigue, right? Really was just like, what is the physiological toll of organizing against a system that has more power than you do, has more resources than you do, has more firepower than you do? What does that do to the body? And then how do we need to respond? Uh, I think those are the moments where there's some real breakthrough and innovation around how do we resource and how do we call in providers to be, um, yeah, to flank, to flank this really critical movement that is happening. And certainly the Black Panther Party as well. I think what's fascinating about, again, exposing the contradictions of this system, even in its most generous moments, continues to be anti-Black and anti-woman, anti-queer, anti-porn, working class folks. And, you know, I think one of the the, the birth story of the Black Panther Party, uh, I think is really the timing of it, rather, I think it speaks to that. You have a black power organization that is uh, originated in 1966 in Oakland, and that's only a year after Medicare was signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson. And this was 
a project to provide healthcare for obviously folks over 65. And there was a very clear awareness by the Black Panther Party that this massive project of providing some type of healthcare to folks who needed it was not serving Black folks and really called for community control of federal resources, um, built community clinics, had a mandate that every chapter should have a clinic. Uh, And it was, in fact, a psychiatrist from the Medical Committee of Human Rights, Terry Coopers, who was also really uh, important for us in this jail fight historically here, who supported the development of the Bunchy Carter Clinic uh, by the Black Panther Party here in Los Angeles. Uh, And so there's a very rich history, uh, a rich history that exposes the limitations and the contradictions of healthcare as it, and health as it's defined by the system that we're, we're challenging uh, that I think is so rich and so critical. And alongside challenging that system, the development of those alternatives, right? The development of those clinics where people not only came, black folks not only came to get care, but were trained to provide care, right? To do blood pressure tests and sickle cell anemia tests and all these just really wonderful skill-ups that I think really speak to the different system that we need to really think about and build. And and again, you know, I think about just this moment we're in in, and COVID and how it's exposed the vulnerabilities of a health system that is rooted in capitalism. I mean, literally, the American Hospital Association put out a report saying that Hospitals have lost $161 billion between March and June of 2020. Uh, They lost that revenue that they would have gotten from various things, emergency department visits and surgeries and all these things, which has resulted in some providers being laid off. And so what does it mean that our health infrastructure is so tied and rooted in that system? It requires us, again, to define health in a way that is about affirming our power and self-determination. And I think that's really, really critical. And just to close off our conversation today, I really want to have you tell us, remind us what the four pillars that movements have practiced under politicized healing in your sort of, you know, research and understanding and sort of bringing back these stories in this history. And that movement should continue to practice because I know that there are uh, four pillars that you're sort of uplifting your work and really, hopefully everybody will know what they are and people begin to really make those connections. Um, But I wanted you to name them. Um, as we sort of end this conversation today. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and and by no means are these the only, but, you know, and and we talk about this as kind of a foundational piece that we're all contributing to via the work that we're doing around healing justice and applying these kind of radical health politics to our work. Um, but what we've seen both here in the U.S. and internationally, this kind of been some trends and and what principles and practices folks have used in in the in the work and they come down to about four of them that I think are really critical one is when talking about health and organizing around health 
practicing self-determination, right? Uh, and so thinking about the ways in which does the outcomes of someone being better or someone being treated give them more volition and ability to live the lives and that they want to and, and the ability of their community to determine their lives and their livelihood and their resources. Uh, destigmatization, uh, really looking at the ways in which not just do we shame disease and people with certain conditions, but do we understand it enough to dignify the person, right? And this is such a relationship between destigmatization and the ability to challenge power and the ways in which stigma isolates us from each other. And obviously it's our role as organizers to 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 challenge that in such a critical way and to and build relationship as the as the basis of power. Um and building political consciousness. I mean, I'm really inspired by the work that was done in China to literally eradicate syphilis in a matter of years. I think in, in a matter of like 15 years um, in the 60s, eradicated it. Uh, there wasn't a case, a live case that a doctor could point to. And a lot of what they did is they built political consciousness uh, around what uh, the condition and said, look, this is a social disease is how they described it. It is not a problem of you and your biology and your physiology and your behavior. It is the product of how our society is designed, right? And therefore, our response can't just be, let's treat this, but let's also change our broader society, which connects to the the fourth principle, which is connecting health to the broader political economy, connecting our health and well-being to the power and the ideology that shapes the way we get our needs met. And, and again, I think about China as a really critical example in the ways in which the eradication of syphilis really looked at not just where, how people were contracting it, and they identified sex workers and women who were working as sex workers, uh, as one of those really key vectors. But instead of criminalizing sex work, what they did is they changed agricultural law so that women could own land and, wor- and work in, in those ways. They changed marital laws to give women more autonomy. They changed uh, their economy in such a way so that women could have more access to co-ops. Uh, and so thinking about what is the legal economic infrastructure that is connected to the quality of health we care for and we care about and we're striving for is really critical. And so, yes, self-determination, destigmatization, building political consciousness and connecting health to the broader political economy uh, are some really inspiring trends that I've seen in, in some successful movements that are thinking about health in a really radical way. You can learn more about Mark Anthony Johnson and his Frontline Wellness Network by following the Frontline Wellness Network on social media, on Twitter, and Instagram. Please take a moment and before closing this app or platform you're currently using to listen to La Cura today, take a moment and like our episode. On the same platform, please subscribe to our podcast to receive the latest episode as soon as it drops. Welcome to our Mystica y Medicina space. 
this will be our collective space after every episode. Why Mystica? During my work in climate justice and my travels to Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, Paraguay, I was exposed to movements confronting climate change, many led by indigenous people across the globe. They weren't waiting to win in order to live and practice their values and build a community and a culture that reflected them. One of my favorite practices to partake in was the Mysticas. They were usually collective grounding rituals before, during, or after any movement event. Sometimes it involved music, dance, poetry, and ancestors. Why Medicina? Our Medicina will be the tonic of curiosity. You might deepen your knowledge further about the theme of the pod, or we might take you on a learning journey with us. We want to engage in the practice of curiosity and learn in the process together. So there will be some research involved on my end, some interesting facts put out, and some more questions posed. Last thing I want to flag is that you might often hear nature on the background of this recording. You probably do right now. <laughs> it wouldn't have been more perfect if I planned it that way. I currently reside in the countryside of Puerto Rico, and everything outside the walls of my space has a lot to say. Something that brings me so much joy are the birds, a random rooster crowing here or there, the wind, the rain, the coquis, the coconuts falling on the ground hella hard and loud was beginning to stress me out when I thought about recording this pod. So I've decided instead of struggling to see how to miraculously record without any of this on the background, I'm bringing you into my world and I hope these sounds also bring you joy or at least a little laughter every once in a while, especially our friend Phil who has been so thoughtful and thorough in helping us improve our sound quality. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, edited by Lourdes Hernandez. A very special thanks to Phil Circus for all his support and guidance on all aspects of production of this new season for La Cura. Thank you, Phil. 